This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everybody. Hope you're all doing well. We've got quite a discussion for you today. As climate effects become more severe, regions of the U.S. are experiencing extended periods of drought. So we're talking today with Brad Lancaster, the author of Rainwater Harvesting, a wonderful book about the many ways you can save water on your property and in your gardens. And now I'd like to introduce Brad Lancaster to the show. Brad, how are you doing? Doing great, thanks. I'm so glad you could join us today. This topic of rainwater harvesting, more and more people are thinking about it and talking about it. And even towns and town officials now are taking a hard, close look at their water management policies. Could you talk to us about what was the genesis of the book? What led you to write it? Yeah. So growing up here in the dry land community of Tucson, Arizona, I noticed the water situation continually getting worse as our water table dropped, the riparian forests died out as their roots could no longer access the dropping groundwater. We were losing springs and wells. And I learned of the history of how we had once had a uh, river that flowed year round, but due to mismanagement of the watershed and the river and the groundwater, we lost that river. I didn't want to be part of the problem. I wanted to be more a part of a solution. So I started looking to, rather than fighting the living systems that enable us and life to be, how could I better collaborate with them? And that's what led me on this journey. So how could I give back more water to the local hydrology, groundwater, and so on, than I took from it in a year? That became one of my guiding aims or goals. And... I figured out how to do it primarily from learning from seemingly disadvantaged mentors that were in, for example, Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko in the driest region of Zimbabwe, an area where there's not much economic activity. And he taught himself and his family how to turn around an eroding landholding into what's now become uh, an oasis. And they've become teachers for people in the whole region. And they brought the groundwater level up. They revived their wells. They brought back springs to their land. All with these super simple strategies that you can do with just a shovel. That just so inspired me because I realized, wow, I can do that. Anybody can do that. I just kept pursuing that more and more. So it's like, well, how can everyone do this in a way that we're giving back more than we're taking to grow more regenerative abundance? Now, in the preface to volume one of your book, Rainwater Harvesting, there is mentioned the existence of a sort of amnesia among the general public with regards to rainwater harvesting principles. Why do you think that that is the case? When we look at the history, anywhere in the world, 
where you have a dry season or you experience drought, there is a rich cultural history of harvesting rainwater. But in the uh, early 1900s, when mechanical pumps became much more common and readily available, we started to pump water from the aquifer, from surface waters, and delivered it via pipe. So people lost their direct connection with where their water comes from. They were no longer going to the river or the well to get the water. They were no longer monitoring if the water level was rising or dropping. And they abandoned the traditional water harvesting systems that used to help recharge the aquifer, recharge the springs, recharge the rivers. And so the amount of recharge started to drop. And so now I find there is a resurgence of interest in water harvesting around the world because as the pumps can no longer pump water, we can't just continually extract from them without giving back. People are realizing that water harvesting is a great strategy to do that. That is great. Now, the book mentions how we have overextracted the groundwater and people seem to have no real sense of how perilous that is. People seem to have this idea that groundwater is an endless, infinite source. Could you maybe talk about that? Yeah. So you can think of the aquifer or the groundwater as a tank, although it's not a, typically not a big open tank. It's just tiny, poor spaces between the, the sand and the gravel. At least that's the case here in our basin. Oftentimes, we can look upon our rivers and our springs as overflow from the groundwater system. If we just continue to extract that water, it goes empty. The levels drop. So we have to give back at the same time we are taking from it. Ideally, we give back more than we take from it. If that's the case, then the rivers flow even more uh, verdantly, in a more healthy way. But because groundwater is below the ground, (laughs) we typically don't have a visceral connection with it. Now, some great examples of where that's been shifted is in India, where people were losing rivers. They're losing the springs, the groundwater was dropping very quickly. So what the local newspapers started to do is every day, they would put the level of the groundwater on the front page of the newspaper. And so people could see on a daily basis, the groundwater dropping. And then they could see in the rainy season, it's starting to come back up. And then as the community started implementing and rejuvenating traditional water harvesting systems, the groundwater table started going up even more. It was a much more effective of giving more direct feedback to the citizenry, kind of like a speedometer on a Prius that encourages you to slow your speed to get better gas mileage because you're getting that, that immediate feedback. I think we need more of that in our daily lives. Right. So some thinking needs to change is what it sounds like. I don't know what you think about this, but could it be really a big part of it is the way we've been taught to regard water, that we've been taught to regard water as a waste product that needs to be sluiced away as quickly as possible. You know, when you go to town meetings in your typical New England town, what you hear when the subject of water comes up is always, you know, what does the public works department have to say, or what does the state department of transportation have to say about this water issue? It never seems like it's broken down into the uh, responsibility of each and every individual homeowner. Yeah, no, I would agree that a big problem is too often rainwater and stormwater is is looked as 
a waste as opposed to the resource that it actually is. So some of the ways we've gone about addressing that and transforming that here in Tucson is here in my neighborhood on the north side of downtown Tucson, where we only get 11 inches of rain a year, I noticed how much water just would flow down our street in a storm event. So uh, I started digging street-side basins lower than the street, and then I started to uh, illegally cut the street curb to direct street runoff into those street-side basins. Now, I say illegal, but a better term is pre-legal. Because at the time, yes, it was illegal. So we did it on a Sunday when no one from the city was watching. We then approached the city to legalize it. The way we went about legalizing this is we asked the city, well, what are your issues on neighborhood streets? And they said, well, we've got flooding, we've got potholes, we've got too much crime, we've got a lot of litter, we have heat stressors from the exposed asphalt, absorbing heat, releasing it at night. So we've got heat-related illnesses increasing. Hearing all that, we said, okay, well, we think we can help you address all of those issues. Doing these stormwater harvesting curb cuts can help us with that because by directing street runoff off the street where it is a problem and direct it into street side basins where it's a resource, we take water off the street. So we're gonna reduce the flooding. And then we will use that water to help grow native food bearing vegetation that shades over the street, thereby reducing the vaporization of the oils in the asphalt, and that will reduce potholes. We will also work with neighbors to plant these trees, create these basins and maintain them. So that's gonna reduce work for the city while at the same time getting more people to get to know one another. So you build communities. Now there's more friendly eyes on the street, which helps drop crime. And all this great vegetation is helping cool the neighborhoods, reducing the heat-related illnesses. More people are now walking and bicycling because it's more pleasant to do so. So people's health is improving because of that. We're selecting native plants that produce food for people as well as wildlife. So now we're enhancing food security. So an example being the, our local mesquite tree, it's a legume, it's kind of like our native carob, has these naturally sweet, edible, high, protein and carbohydrate rich pods. So we harvest those, we grind them up into flour, make breads, pies, whatnot, moles. And a number of restaurants have picked this up. So now we've got more place-based culinary celebrations and that helped the city of Tucson get awarded the first world city of gastronomy in the United States. So this then helps build the local economy so the trick here is to not look at things just as problems, because if you look at things as problems like flooding in the street, once you maybe address that flooding, you stop trying to make things better. So if we just look at problems, we put a ceiling on what's possible because, you know, once you think you've solved the problem, you stop working. So we're instead trying to focus on, well, what's the inherent potential here? And how do we strive to continue to leverage and enhance the potential of this place? And then there's no ceiling. And that's why we just kept going and going. And we're still continuing to go. Now we're training up local contractors and all to do the work that we've been doing in our neighborhood so they can help others in other neighborhoods. And it improves the value of their offerings and they have a more successful business. And we legalized through our example the harvesting of street runoff. 
So now it's not only legalized throughout the city of Tucson, it's incentivized with water harvesting rebates up to $2,000 per residence and mandated in new road construction and major road renovation. So we've done a 180 degree shift. And to give a little cheerleading rah-rah for your listeners, this all came from just a simple, small scale example done in front of a single residence in a neighborhood that got neighbors juiced and excited. And then it expanded through the neighborhood and now it's expanded citywide. So there's huge potential Anywhere we are, we just got to tap it. And a lot of times that's looking at what people consider waste, like stormwater, and realize, wow, if we look at this a different way, if we manage it a different way, this is a phenomenal resource that can grow still more resources. I think that's wonderful. Now, you mentioned you own one eighth of an acre along the, is it the Sonoran Desert? Well, Tucson's in the Sonoran Desert. We're in a very urban setting. We're just on the north side of downtown Tucson. So on our one-eighth of an acre, and I say our because I own it with my brother, and so I live here on the property uh, with my brother and his family. So on this eighth of an acre and the surrounding public right-of-way, which is the area between the street curb and the property line where you typically have a sidewalk and stuff, that area, we harvest about 100,000 gallons of rainwater per year, despite the fact that only 11 inches of rain falls from the sky in a year. So by capturing that water in these basin-like rain gardens, we bank that water in the soil. And then we use living pumps of vegetation to access that water in the form of shade, wildlife habitat, food production, beauty, and so forth. So we now are infiltrating far more water back into the soil and the aquifer than we extract from it via municipal water use. And that was one of our original goals or aims that we were striving for. And we are trying to do this in a way that can show how everybody can give back more than they take in a way that doesn't deny you resources or ability, but it actually grows far more resources and potential. Because when we moved here, it was pretty much a barren lot. It was just bare dirt. So it was the public right of way. Now everything is this glorious food producing canopy of native and a few non-native trees and many understory plants. And we've had over two dozen native bird species return and take up residents that weren't here before because we've regrown their habitat. I've talked with uh, Maria, one of my uh, elder neighbors, and she was here in the 1960s. And she said for decades, she said the neighborhood was very quiet in that there were very few birds because there was very little habitat. The habitat had been bladed out to build the neighborhood. So when we worked with neighbors, we created this annual rain and tree planting project where we first plant the rain in water harvesting basins lower than the street. And then we cut the street curb to direct the street runoff into the basins. And then we plant the trees and we've actually evolved it further. Now we don't just plant the trees. We plant all the understory plants at the same time. And we have found that you can harvest over a million gallons per mile of neighborhood street per year. So we have more than enough water flowing off the streets to grow all the vegetation that can grow to shade and shelter the streets and the public walkways while producing food, wildlife habitat, and much more. And it just created so much more of a rich 
experience. Like, you know, just this morning I was hanging out with a roadrunner as a javelina ran by. Javelinas are kind of like wild pigs, but more closely related to deer. And right on the edge of downtown Tucson. It's wonderful. And, you know, kids just giggle with delight when they see this, as do I. Yeah, all of that is amazing to hear. Now, you talk about buffering your property from the extreme effects of the climate. Could you list some of those ways? And I know in your book, you talk about rain gardens and cisterns and rain barrels. Could you maybe give our listeners a list of ways they can harvest their rainwater? Definitely. So the first step is to plant your rainwater. That's before you consider any tank or anything like that. So you're just moving dirt. And so what do I mean by planting the rain? I mean, you create these basin-like shapes in which or beside which you plant, which is the opposite of what you typically see around here where people plant on mound-like shapes. And then all the water drains away from those mounds. And then they have to bring in intravenous-like drip irrigation to replace the water they drained away. So we do the opposite. So instead of planting non-native plants from somewhere else and then irrigating them with water pumped in from somewhere else and fertilizing them with fertility imported from somewhere else, like purchased fertilizer, we use everything free and local. So we plant the rain, we change the topography so the rain sticks around. And it doesn't just puddle and breed mosquitoes because along with capturing the rain in these basins, we capture leaf drop. Whenever we prune a tree or a plant, we cut up the prunings and put it in the basin. So we create this sponge of organic matter. So the water is very rapidly infiltrated. So we store the water beneath the surface of the soil, not on top of the surface of the soil. So we lose less of it to evaporation. Then there's no mosquito problem. The roots of the vegetation uptake the water and grow the vegetation, the fruit, the shelter, and so forth. And these same rain gardens, these basin shapes, we can direct any free on-site water to them. So in times of no rain, we direct our household gray water. So household gray water, that's the water from the drains of your sink, shower, bathtub, and washing machine. It's not from your toilet. That's different stuff. That's got, you know, the poop in it and whatnot. So that's called black water. So we don't touch that. We just touch the um, easier to deal with waters from your sink, shower, bathtub, and washing machine, the gray water. So with a pipe that's got a minimum 2% slope, we direct the gray water to the same rain garden basins. So in the times of no rain, we are irrigating with gray water. So our lightly used drain water, we reuse again. You've already paid for it. So what we're striving to do is to mimic the planetary hydrologic cycle. So the planet never runs out of fresh water. Maybe little sections of the planet does on occasion, but the planet as a whole does not. And that's because of trillions of life forms that cycle the water many, many times, maintaining its quality or even improving it. So an example being, you know, when it rains, the plants grow and beneficial bacteria in the stomata of the tree's leaves, for example, they then rise up out of the stomata of the leaves, make it way up into the atmosphere, and they create the ideal cloud seeds around which atmospheric moisture can condense and form clouds and from which water can rain again. So without the vegetation, we get far less rain. With more vegetation, we get more rain. So more life equals more water and more life because water is the lubricant of exchange. Water is what makes life possible. So we are striving to mimic the planetary hydrologic cycle by 
recycling our gray water in a way that the life in the soil and the vegetation filter that gray water and make it available for more life to grow and generate more local moisture. And it's not just gray water. You can also send the condensate from air conditioners to these same rain gardens. If it's along a street, you can direct street runoff into these rain gardens. And if you want to put in a rainwater tank, okay, that's great. But I usually do that after I've done the earthworks or the rain gardens, because you always need a place to direct the overflow from the tank. And that should also go into these rain gardens. A nice advantage if you do go for tanks, then you've got the water readily at hand for whatever use. So I live off rainwater. Rainwater is my primary water source for drinking, bathing, cooking, washing, and irrigation needs. And I'm able to do that in this dry land environment because I use my water many times. So the water that goes down my kitchen sink drain, I reuse as gray water to irrigate the plants, then shade and cool my house. So I need less water in my evaporative cooler to cool my house because the trees have already done most of the work. Yeah, we just strive for this more integrated system that's mimicking the natural systems out in the world that enable us to be here in the first place. So now you say in your book that many of us think of ourselves as separate and independent from nature. Could you address that for a moment? You know, I think we go about our daily lives oftentimes just, you know, consuming things. We're not really living a collaborative life with the systems that enable life to be here. So, you know, if we just harvest lumber to build a house or harvest food to, to eat, if we don't regrow that forest, if we don't regrow that food, we're going to really mess ourselves up in the future. So what I strive to do in my life and in my work and in my books is to show people, well, how can we more consciously connect with the natural systems that enable life to be here? So an example being, since I live off rainwater, I can see the water level rising or dropping in my tank on a daily basis. So as the water level drops, I'm like, oh, I have to conserve. I, sh- I shouldn't use so much. Whereas when my tanks are full, it's like, okay, I can, I can use more water now. It's a wonderful feedback loop that way. But it goes further than that, in that I'm also looking at, well, how can I use my harvested rain or my recycled gray water to grow more vegetation in a way that is going to help generate more rainfall? It's going to help reduce flooding. It's going to help improve stormwater quality. I oftentimes, I guess for my meditative life and work, you know, I hike out into the natural world and I see, well, what's working out here and how is it working and how could that inform what I do back home and our work along the streets, harvesting street runoff that's been informed when I go along creeks that have not downcut and eroded so that they're still healthy and the floodplain can still be accessed by the water flowing down the creek. So when there's a flood flow, the water easily spills out of the creek into the adjoining floodplain. The flow becomes much shallower, spread out, so it's not destructive. Instead, it is rehydrating much more of the watershed as nature intended, and we get much more life there. Then quickly infiltrates the floodplain and is slowly released weeks, months after the flood event back into the creek. So we get that creek flowing all year round rather than just for a few hours or days. So I know I just threw a lot out at you there. Um, Oh, no, that's great. 
Now, you've been called the patron saint of water democracy. Could you talk about water democracy for just a few minutes? Well, I don't believe in hoarding. I think we should be trying to enhance abundance for all life. So that's why I primarily wa harvest water in rain gardens or earthworks as opposed to tanks. I do both, but the majority of my work is in the earthworks in the soil because that becomes available for everyone in the way that we do it. So the majority of our water harvesting work is in the public right of way. So all our neighbors or anyone visiting the neighborhood can enjoy it. It's in the public realm. We are showing people how can they do likewise? How can they grow this regenerative abundance in their life? We're not hoarding the information. So we have many workshops, work parties, celebratory events and whatnot. And we're working with the city to help change public policy. Because the more people that we get doing this, the more of the watershed we regenerate, which helps everyone because that helps recharge the aquifer for the entire community. That helps recharge not just our aquifer, but the healthier our watershed is, the healthier the watersheds below will be. So we help others in the larger watershed. We here in Tucson are part of the Colorado River watershed. Historically, we contributed water to the Colorado River. We're above the Colorado River. But now, through different decisions, the city of Tucson pumps water from the Colorado River more than it gives back. So we are contributing to the death of the Colorado River. So our neighborhood efforts and whatnot, and the work I'm doing with different city officials, we're working to shift that back into a more positive, regenerative way. Because life can't exist as individual lives. We all depend on one another, and what we do affects one another. So I strive to do work that helps empower and enable all lives in the watershed to enhance all other lives in the watershed. And I just want to say a quick thing, since I know you focus a lot on the native wildlife and whatnot. Let me just give you one example of how we plant native mesquites along our streets in our, our streetside rain gardens, as opposed to non-native mesquite trees. Because we found that the native mesquite supports over 60 different native pollinators compared to a non-native South American hybrid mesquite planted here in Arizona. So we have far more native pollinators on a native mesquite tree. But what's even better still is that attracts so much more bird life. And that bird life will then take us to the better tasting mesquite trees because every mesquite tree tastes different. So the mesquite trees with the pods that have been stripped by the birds, those are the best tasting. So we go and harvest from those. And then we've learned that the many migrating songbirds from Central America on their way to Alaska and further north, they are very dependent on these native mesquite trees. They are small birds, they have to recharge on their migratory flight, so they can drop into a single native mesquite tree, and there's so much abundant beneficial insect life, just eating the insects in that one tree, they can increase their body weight by 10 to 20% in two to four days, and then they can continue their journey. When we learned that from Tucson Audubon, that exploded our sense of place, like, wow, our place and what we're doing is so much bigger than here. We're contributing to the whole migratory highway of these birds. We're enabling them to, to exist. We're enabling them to continue to thrive. And what if we can do this in a way that inspires other communities and neighbors along the same migratory route to do the same thing? 
which we're doing and we're getting cross-pollinization amongst others doing this stuff and all doing it in a way that recharges our aquifer and watersheds at the same time. This is what makes life juicy for me and inspires me to keep going. I think that's wonderful, Brad. Thank you so much. I'm just so in awe of the wonderful work that you're doing. I can't wait to hear more. Please tell my listeners where they can get your book. Yeah, the best place to get my books, along with a lot of great free information, videos, image galleries, and case studies and stuff, is on my website, harvestingrainwater.com. And along with harvestingrainwater.com, I also encourage people to go to neighborhoodforesters.org. So while harvestingrainwater.com is my water harvesting work, neighborhoodforesters.org is the story and the info and the resources of how we have been transforming our neighborhood with water harvesting and native food bearing plant forestry efforts. So those are the best steps. And of course, you can also ask your local library to carry the books and your local bookstores. That's great. It's available on Kindle too now. Yes, it sure is. Yep. And I've got a Spanish edition coming out later in the year. Wow, that is fantastic. I'd like to thank Brad Lancaster for joining us today. You can find out more about Brad and his books by going to harvestingrainwater.com. You can also watch his YouTube videos on rainwater harvesting by subscribing to his channel, Brad Lancaster. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.